were from for his father and grandfather who had left the nation kind of uh, looking for some hope. You know, kind of his dad and granddad maybe started out okay, but they didn't end very well. And the nation's just looking for some hope. They're looking for some encouragement, looking for an answer, someone that will direct their hearts back to the Lord. And so before long, it's, it's, there's, they find a lot of hope in this young man named King Uzziah. King Uzziah was um, a good king. The Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he, he had great, they, they flourished, the nation flourished, had great success. Militarily, they had great success. Uh, they had a great army. Uh, he had, Uzziah had individuals that would come up with new weapons for warfare. They'd invent these new weapons, and they were kind of like the marvel of the other nations for this military that they had and the weapons they fought with, and they seemed to always be victorious. Uh, they flourished as he rebuilt the infrastructure of, of Judah at that time. Um, he built a lot of towers, put down a lot of wells, uh, rebuilt the walls around the city, and there was a lot of prosperity financially and just the infrastructure being rebuilt. And then Hezekiah, or Uzziah, excuse me, also prospered really politically in a personal sense. He became very famous around the neighboring nations, especially all the way into Egypt. People knew of Uzziah. He, he was quite a name and quite a king for Judah. And, and the reason for his success, we can find the reason for his success here. It is in Second Chronicles 26 that kind of tells the story of his life. And that we see his success if we look at verses 4 and 5. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So you can see why he was successful. You see, like we sang this morning, yet not I, but through Christ in me. We can find great success when we rely on Christ. And so the word seek here, again, we've talked about it in passages and psalms in this series. It carries that idea of worship, that as he worshiped, as he worked his way to God and worshiped God and sought out God, he found Great success as he trusted in him and relied on him. The people of Judah knew great success. The thing is, Uzziah, as successful as he is, uh, he ha- his life has a big but for us, a big but for us at the end of it. Because uh, here's the reality that we read on. His failure is found towards the end of the book here. Well, mid- midway through, verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, if you know anything about Jewish law and Jewish, you know, the, the Jewish way, that, that was not something the king was allowed to do. That was reserved for the priests. They were the ones to go in and burn the incense and offer the sacrifice. And so, but Hezekiah has all this great success, you know, uh, militarily, uh, uh, fight, you know, just, just within the nation and, and politically and financially, all this great success. And so as he gets proud, he thinks, well, I can do this on my own. And uh, 80 of the priests come out and confront Uzziah and, and are like, hey, what are you doing? You're not allowed to do that. And it's a really telling story because there's Uzziah. He's got the, the incense in his hand. And, and instead of humbly acknowledging his wrong and, and admitting to his sin, he gets angry. gets angry at the 80 priests. And what happens next immediately is he is struck with leprosy. And they rush Uzziah out of the temple because 
Well, you really can't be in the temple if you have leprosy. You can't even be in the city. And so here's what it says about his end. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. What a sad ending to a life that had such promise and a life that had such hope. But the reality is this is not a new story. This is a story that we have seen repeated throughout history. In fact, this is the story that goes all the way back to the beginning of mankind. Think of Adam, right? Created Adam, created in the image of God, placed in the garden of God, given the authority over the creation of God. And what happened? Well, he fell. He had a, a moral fall in his own sense. And the ripple effects of his fall, it's like throwing a stone into a river, you know, and the ripple effects just go onward and outward and onward and outward and onward and outward. And that's what happened through time when Adam sinned all the way to Uzziah, all the way to the present day and age. We see it in the present day and age. We see it in the pastor, this pastor of, of, of a megachurch who writes books and preaches great sermons and is well known. And then one day he has a moral failure. Or his past moral failures get exposed for all to see. And we, we ask ourselves, <laughs> is there hope for the church? We see it within the, uh, really within the political systems all over the world. We see it in political leaders who make promises they can't keep, who sell their integrity, who try to hide up their own indiscretions, right? And um, we ask, is there hope for our country? We see it even within the business world. You see business leaders who lie and who cheat and who steal and uh, you know, cut all kinds of corners and try to hide their own moral indiscretions. And we ask ourselves, is there hope for corporate America? We, we just wonder, is there hope? In fact, we come to the point, I think it's here, asking this question, what do we do when our leaders fail us? Why do our leaders fail us? What, what, is there any hope? And I think this is somewhat on the mind, maybe, of Isaiah as we get into today's text. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 6. What do we do when our leaders fail us? Why do our leaders fail us? We're in week 7 of this series, The Power of Worship. We have a couple more Sundays after this, and, and then we're going to move on. But, um, but just remember the two legs. <clears throat> the two legs of our, of our worship are trust and gratitude. And one of the offshoots of, of trust is this idea of hope. We've talked about this reality of hope. The thing is, wherever we place our trust is where we find our hope. Who are you trusting this morning with your hope? Who are you trusting this morning with your hope? Who are you trusting to give you hope? That is the question. I want to talk today about being consumed with hope. I want to talk about how our, our worship can feed our hope, how we can have hope in a world of despair. There is a quote that circulated. It's been on Facebook for a long time. I think back in, in 2012 when Obama won, you saw this circulate uh, the, uh, the internet. And then in 2016 when Donald Trump won, it started circulating the internet depending on your political persuasion this was supposed to give us hope and it was the idea of this no matter who is in the white house christ is on the throne no matter who's president it doesn't matter christ is on the throne and we all need that sentiment we need to place our trust in heaven and not washington so we find our hope in god and not the president or any politician here's today's big idea 
When we worship, we find a hope that is above us and a hope that goes beyond us. And we'll see what that means as we go through the, series, the, the message this morning. But when we worship, we find a hope that is above us and a hope that goes beyond us. It's an amazing hope. It's a powerful hope. And the reality is it's a hope we can find nowhere else. And sometimes in the midst of our despair, we simply have to be deliberately expressive with our worship, proclaiming the name of the one who can be trusted with our hope. And again, I ask you this morning, who are you trusting with your hope? That's the question. And again, whatever we worship, how do we know what we're worshiping? By it's what, what, what we trust. And whatever we trust is where we find our hope. Isaiah chapter 6, great passage, a great heavenly vision that Isaiah has of the throne. Now the reality is, uh, back last, last Christmas I touched on this briefly in the message. And in Easter I referenced this briefly in the message. And this morning we're going to walk through this in much more detail. And look at all the um, 13, I believe it's 13 verses. And we're going to look at all of the verses, and it's just a powerful, powerful, powerful vision. So let's start here. We're going to talk today about understanding the reality between worship and hope. There are four realities we're going to see about understanding this reality of worship and hope. So let's start in the first four verses. Here's what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is some worship. You know, the the foundation shook there, not because God spoke, but because of the people who were singing in worship. Because of those angelic beings worshiping, and they shook the ground. Here's our first reality this morning. The object of our worship can fill us with hope. The object of our worship can fill us with hope. Can you imagine if you were in Isaiah's shoes? Can you imagine if you were to experience what he experienced? How amazing would that be? Well, I want to start here, and I want us to understand the object of our worship can fill us with hope, and I get it. If you read through those first few verses, you think that's contrary. The Scripture says the exact opposite, because Isaiah wasn't filled with hope. He was filled with what? Terror and fear. Woe is me. But we're going to understand today that, no, the object of our worship can fill us with hope. And it starts for us with our vantage point. It starts with our vantage point. Understand that this vision that Isaiah sees is like 1,300 years before the cross. Today, we read this vision 2,000 years after the cross. That makes a big difference. makes a big difference to understanding what we're going to see and the implications of what we are going to process I've said throughout this series, as we're going through Psalms, sometimes you have to know you're reading someone else's mail. Today we're seeing someone else's vision and how he processed this vision 3,000 years before us. So, that's the first thing. We have this vantage point. And then secondly, we have hope in our our worship. The object of worship fills us with, with hope because the object of our worship is Yahweh. The object of our worship is Yahweh. It is not an object. It's a living being. 
It is the being from which every other living thing finds its essence. There is nothing in existence that has life that that life cannot be traced back to Yahweh. Just know that. The the point here is that Isaiah is not moved here by the presence of a grand throne, by flying angels, by the shaking of the ground, by the smoke that fills the airs. He is moved here by the one who made all of that happen. The one responsible for this incredible worship. That is what moves Isaiah. Now, there are three simple things here, though. We look at this. Three simple things that can help us engage our hope. So let's look at them. First thing, you want to engage this hope that we can find in worship. Number one, look up. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Look up. I don't think it is just a consequential kind of just happenstance that heaven is above us. I think that's intentional. God said, hey, I'm going to put heaven. I'm going to, I'm going to be above you. I'm going to rule over you, and you're going to look up to me. And look up. We need to learn to look up. The position, note the position of God here. He is above Isaiah. He is over us. And the reality is we have to get our eyes off and off of this world, off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, and we have to look up if we want hope. In fact, the very thing that often blinds us and, and puts us in despair is when, we, is when we get our eyes here on our circumstances, on our reality here on earth. Instead of looking down in defeat, instead of looking around us at our problems, we need to look up. There is a hope that is above us. There is a hope that is above us. And I think this is where Isaiah is taken in this vision. Remember the greater question we asked at the outset. What do we do when our leaders fail us? Why do our leaders fail us? Why? And I think he's looking here and he's looking at Uzziah who let him down and then here's Christ who will never let us down. Who will, don't, don't get your eyes on this world. Don't get your eyes on worldly leaders. Get your eyes on Christ. He will never, never fail you. He has a hope that is above us and a hope that is beyond us. I, I kind of, it's like I said last week, I was making that reference to an Andy Stanley comment about, about how he never confused himself with the king. He knew he was a king and he was not the king. And that's really significant for you and I today and for a lot of people today as we see going forward in this message. So look up. Psalms 123.1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Jesus himself in in the gospel of John, and, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We're called to look up and find hope. But then also at the same time, don't just look up, but bow down. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And so now we have this throne. We're looking up, but we're looking up to this throne. And there is this throne that no one else is worthy to sit on. No one else is worthy to sit on the throne. It's the throne that if you remember one one time way back before we were even here, Satan wanted to ascend to heaven and sit on the throne of God. And God said, you can't. You're not worthy. And he kicked him back down to heaven. And we know where that all unraveled to. We know the ripple effects of Satan's decision to try to sit on Yahweh's throne. 
Think about the greater and more personal implications here, though. Okay, think about this. Every life has someone who rules it. Every life has someone who calls the shots. Everyone has, has a throne and, and someone who sits on it. And for the atheist and the agnostic and the hedonist and the humanist, they all look to self. They are all their own God. They rule their own lives. I can just tell you this morning, I'll just admit it to you. I do not want to be my own God. I would make a terrible God. You know what I can do pretty good though? I make a terrible God, but I can make a great temple. I can make a great, awesome temple. And that's what I'm supposed to be. And the one who can manage the entire world, who can sit on the throne and rule the entire universe, will manage and rule my simple, little, humble, feeble life. How amazing is that? And if you are saved and you're here today and you know Christ as your Savior, let me tell you, you are a temple. Are you living like one? I just know I don't want to be the highest person in my personal orbit. Thankfully, there is someone above me that is greater than me, that is smarter than me, that is stronger than me, that is wiser than me, that is over me, that I can look up to, that I can bow down to, that I can place my trust in. Thankfully, there is someone like that. Psalms 33:20 Our soul waits for the Lord it is our he is our help and our shield for our our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name let your steadfast love o lord be upon us even as we hope in you and again we see that relationship between trust and hope wherever i place my trust is where i find my hope who am i trusting with my hope this morning so how do I find this, the hope in the object of my worship? Well, I look up and I bow down and then I sing out. I sing out. If, if you need hope, be intentional with the expression of your worship. Be deliberate in the proclamation of your praise. Can you hear the song they were singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And note that Isaiah is not even doing the singing here. He's just taken captive by the singing. He's just caught up in the worship. And the reality is, no, we've never had maybe an experience like Isaiah. Or like the one that Wayne read earlier, like John had in Revelation. We haven't had those maybe kinds of experiences. But you know what? We have seen the glory of the Lord. Because the whole earth is full of His glory. And we can look all around us if we want to, and we can see the glory of God, and we can be taken captive by the glory of God. We can be moved to worship by the glory of God. I had my earphones in this past week at work. I was scanning some boxes, and there's a new song on. I'm listening to, the, to this new song, great new song. And um, a couple, one guy shouted over to me kind of. It's like, hey, are you, are you practicing for Sunday? I guess evidently my worship kind of showed. It's a great song, and maybe we'll sing it here. I played it this morning before the service. But anyway, the reality is we could all stand to sing out a little more. Be intentional. If you want hope, just be intentional. Just, or put the earphones in and let someone sing to you and just take it in. And notice the song here. There's three elements of, of this simple song here. His name, the Lord of hosts. Whenever you see the Lord of hosts, Lord capitalized, we know that's a reference to Yahweh, the self-existent God, the great I Am. That's his personal name. We've talked about that several times before. But then note that it's not just his name here. I think I have it on the screen here, actually. We have his name, and then we have his character. 
His name is based on his character. That's the kind of cool thing. So we call him the God of a hundred names because he has such a vast character and his name is based or built off of his character. Now here's what's really fascinating about this, right? Because there's all these false gods. I'm not an expert on the false gods in history. And, and I know some people might have spent a couple hours studying this out so they could make a better point here. But I'll just tell you this. I know there are all these false gods. There was the moon god and the sun god and the fertility god and the god of harvest and the god of the tides and the god of the oceans. And there's all these false gods that they worshipped, right? And all of these gods were, they specialized in something. Remember the Exodus when um, God is leading through Moses, leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember the 10 plagues? Kids remember the 10 plagues? We went through them last year with them, you know, the, the frog and the locusts and the flies, and there's these ten plagues. You know, every one of those plagues, what one of those they, they did, they humiliated a different false god of, of Egypt. Just humiliated them. But now think about this. So you have you have all of these false gods and they all specialize in these things. And then over here, who do we worship? We worship the one true God. The one true God of a hundred names who specializes in everything. Isn't that cool? And it's, it's like I said a couple of weeks ago, everything, it's really fascinating when you think about the false gods. It's so crazy. You have all of these false gods, right? The sun god, the moon god, all these different gods. And they are all based on what? Something that the one true God created. The one true God created everything in the world and then there's all these false gods. Well, they specialize in this and that and the next thing. Our God specializes in everything. And so we have holy, holy, holy. That's his character. That's speaking to his character. Holy simply means he is set apart. Set apart by the essence of who he is. His essence is his, his love or his goodness and his light or his glory. That's his essence. And then his character follows. All of those things we talk about, that we sing about, all those names that he has, that is his character. Jeremiah chapter 10, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. Whoa. Like I said earlier, everything that has life finds its essence of life in the one who created life. And you know what? Everything in life that is holy and set apart finds its holiness, what? In the one who is holy, namely you and me. As believers, as Christians, we have been set apart. We have been made holy. We are not gods, but we are temples of the one true God. And finally, they sing the whole earth is full of his glory. And the simple reality is, is that we can see the glory of God throughout his creation. There's one surprising area we can see the glory of God, and I'll touch on that at the end of the message, but just, just the beautiful reality of this song. So but you want to find the object of your hope as you worship. Look up, bow down, and sing out. Here's the second reality this morning. Let's go on to verses 5 through 7. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Here's our second reality. The object of our worship can fill us with joy. The object of our worship can fill us with joy. And I get we still have that sense of terror there, right? That Isaiah in this vision is, is, is more freaked out, more full of terror and fear than it seems to be joy. But just follow me here. 
Why? Why can we find joy in our worship? Well, because there is a hope that is beyond us. There is a hope that is above us. We saw that there is a hope that is above us, over us. Look up to this hope. Bow down to this hope. Sing out to this hope. But there is a hope that is beyond us. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? When we worship, we find a hope that is above us and a hope that is beyond us. A hope that can produce joy in our life. Why? Because there is a hope that I am not responsible for. There is a hope that I cannot produce. There is a hope that I can do nothing on my own to manufacture. A hope that only comes from the grace and the mercy of the one true God. And you see the emotional mindset here of Isaiah. Notice how it shifts, right? He's filled with despair, but his despair will give way to hope. Note that he says, woe is me for I am lost. By lost, he's expressing his hopelessness. I really believe Isaiah just thinks, okay, Isaiah knows you can't look at God and live. He knows that much. And I think he believes, whoa, I have just seen the full glory of God. I am doomed. No one can look at God and live. Well, the reality is I don't think Isaiah saw the full glory of God. God didn't do that to Isaiah. Just imagine if he had. But there, there's this reality, and so he's full with this, 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 this despair. What he did, though, he saw enough of God. Isaiah saw enough of God that his humanness and his brokenness and his sinfulness was deeply exposed. And in that naked moment before God, he's like, I'm doomed, man. But note the despair that gives way to hope. Not because of anything that Isaiah does, but because of the cleansing that God freely offers. And then there is, so it goes from despair to hope. And then we see the second transformation here from guilt to gratitude. And here comes the seraphim who takes the coal from the sacrificial altar, touches the lips, cleanses him, and and tells him his guilt is taken away. Now, the text doesn't use the word gratitude, but as we read on, we can see that there's this sort of gratitude that kind of permeates through the life of Isaiah. The object of our worship can fill us with joy, a joy that comes from the hope that is beyond us, a hope that we can find nowhere else and that we can do nothing to manufacture on our own. We simply find that hope when we put our trust in Yahweh. As I said, there's this, the, the book of Revelations, and Wayne read earlier, a great parallel vision. Now, the, the vision in Revelation goes much longer and much deeper. Revelation's kind of like there's the first chapter, and, and he kind of sees Jesus, and then he writes to the, to the seven churches, and then in chapter four, this, vi- this throne vision starts and goes on for about four chapters, and then they get into all the breaking of the seals and the woes, and it's, it's, a, it's just a, it's, there's a lot going on in the book. And what's fascinating is that there are a lot of parallels in their, in their visions between John in Revelations and Isaiah here in the Old Testament. They both have the glory of God. They both have the throne of God. In fact, John's vision throws in thunder and lightning and a rainbow. They both have the song of God. Both, in both instances, they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They both reference in some way the gospel of God. There is one thing glaringly absent from Isaiah's, from John's gospel, though. There's one thing you find in, in Isaiah's shorter vision that you don't find in John's longer vision. Anybody know what it is? 
Any guess what's maybe missing that's in Isaiah's vision but not in John's? I'll tell you. The terror and the fear. The, Jesus takes the terror and fear out of God. Now, let's set this straight. Go back to Revelations 1. And, and here's the experience that John had when he starts the revelation. When I saw him, when I saw Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's like, hey, don't, don't have to be afraid. And it's really good he said that because I'm telling you, just read chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and read on through the book. I mean, it's, if Isaiah said, woe is me, and if Isaiah thought he was doomed, what would John have thought? John saw a much more intense revelation. And you know what? Never once does John say, woe is me, I am doomed. John just tells the story. Tells the grand vision. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And so we just see that Jesus takes the terror and fear out of God. We transition from despair to hope. We transition from guilt to gratitude. That's the reality. Today when we worship, the object of our worship can fill us with joy because it offers us a hope that is beyond us, a hope that ultimately flows from the cross. Here's our third reality this morning. We see it in verses 8 and 9, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, and he goes on and gives him the message. We'll touch on the message in a moment. But here's the reality. The object of our worship can fill us with purpose. The object of our worship can fill us with purpose I want to see the, 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 the flow of events here if we can in a moment okay so I, Isaiah witnesses this most awe-inspiring all-consuming vision it, this vision humbles Isaiah so he confesses his humanist brokenness and sinfulness and it, he despairs for his life and then the seraphim come along and cleanse Isaiah at which point God gives the call and then Isaiah is going to answer that call in humbleness and in gratefulness he's going to respond to that call so here's what i want you to see first of all that worship can help us hear the call of god worship can help us get tuned in to the call of god because god is often trying to call us and and give us opportunities and invite us into his work and we can get so consumed with so much stuff in this world we just sometimes don't hear the simple call of God. Now that's not to say that God can't cause us to hear him. That's not to say that God can't say, no, you're going to listen to me. I'm going to make sure you listen to me. And God, you know, allows circumstances to flow out in your life in such a way that, okay, I hear you, God. I, I get it. I got to slow down and I got to do whatever. I got to listen. God will try to get our attention. We can try to ignore him and say, no, no, no. And God, if God wants to get our attention, he can get it. And if he gets your attention, then listen to him. Then listen to him. Let him be the God, you just be the temple. But worship, though, like the experience that Isaiah has, worship that exalts God and that diminishes the distractions in our life can help us to hear the call of God. Now, this is a significant call, I believe here. This is the call that propelled Isaiah to go out and be a prophet for God. But, but every day God calls us. Every day God wants to speak to us and invite us to move here or move there or talk to this person or engage that person every single day. But it's more than just hearing the, 
the, the hearing God's call. Note it says, then I said, here I am, send me. So worship motivates us to answer or helps us answer the call of God. As I'm consumed in worship, then I'm more ready to step up and say, okay, Lord, I'll go. We have this vision of worship. We have the glory of God, the humbling by God, the mercy from God. All of this inspires and motivates Isaiah to answer this call with a huge, yes, I will go. In fact, it's kind of like, well, yeah, how could I not go? How could I not go? I was doomed and I'm not doomed. I'm filled with hope. How could I? Not go. It's kind of like the verse we've used a lot in this series, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of God's great mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Good and acceptable and perfect. Mercy that motivates us to say yes to God and then the discerning that allows us to effectively carry it out. We've identified this verse properly as a lifestyle worship verse, but the simple fact remains worship that is a lifestyle deliberately looks up, bows down, and sings out. Places its trust in the one true God. Now there's this play on words in Scripture and I think it's intentional. We know that Jesus, right, his name, he is the great I am, the self-existent God. And then, like, throughout the Bible, we see these I am phrases. Jesus uses all the I am phrases. It's part of his name. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I think that's intentional. And he does the same thing, though. He flips it around for you and I because of my identity being in Christ. We see all these I am statements in the scriptures that refer to you and me. I am loved, I am called, I am worthy, I am sanctified, I am. Last week, we talked about work. What did we say last week? Remember, remember what we said last week? A little quiz here. We talked about our identity and our work, right? What we say, how, how, I am, how does that relate to our work? I am, therefore, I am, therefore, I work. I work because that's my identity. I don't work to find my identity. I work because God is a worker. I'm a worker. I am, therefore I work. What is Isaiah saying for us in this passage? Okay, last week, I am, therefore I work. Here's what Isaiah is saying. I am, therefore I go. I am, therefore I go. Because I have been, this, um, <clears throat> this object of hope that I have found as I worship, how can I not go into the world? and take this hope to the world. How can I not do that? Our purpose is to share the message of hope. We talk about having this message. What is our message? Our message is a message of hope. How awesome is that? Yeah, we know the gospel is the gospel of grace. That's how it's defined throughout the Bible. It's a gospel of grace, but it's also a gospel of hope. We go out. Here I am, send me, and let's go out into the world, and let's take the hope that we have found in our worship and let's take it out and share it with others. In fact, I'll tell you, if you took the gospel out of my life, and it's probably true for you, take the gospel out of our life, you take away our hope. That's the simple reality. So I worship and I'm filled with hope and then I am called to share that hope with 
the world. Now, just briefly going through the rest of this chapter here, just, just a couple of things here that are pretty interesting. He goes on, go and say to this people, then here's the message he's going to take out. Because follow this, it don't sound very hopeful. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears uh, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That don't sound very good. That don't sound very promising, right? So for starters, this message that Isaiah will share will, for the most part, be rejected. And the reality is, is that Jesus quotes this, Paul quotes this as well, but Jesus quotes this to explain why he taught in parables. He used parables so that some of those religious leaders just wouldn't understand what he was saying. Why? Because he wanted their hearts. And he knew their hearts. So, so he spoke he spoke in parables that you had to understand spiritually through the Spirit of God, through putting your faith and trusting God. And so that's kind of what he's saying here as well. Go out and give them this message. They're not going to understand it because their hearts aren't tuned to me. But go out, but just go out and preach the message anyway. He goes on, then I said, how long, O Lord? That's the age-old question, right? How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a tabernacle or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so he's just basically saying, how long do I got to do this? He says, you're going to do it and you're going to preach and it's going to look really bleak. And Israel's going to be taken off into captivity in Babylon and there'll be a tenth left and then they're going to, they're going to be destroyed. It's just going to be bad. It's going to look hopeless, but it's not. It'll look hopeless, but it's not. Don't lose hope. Keep on trusting He'll, he asks, how long will the world reject your truth? How long will they reject your mercy? How long will they reject your grace? How long will they reject your hope? How long will they go their own way? Uh, and, and Jesus says, yeah, or God says, yeah, they're, they're, gonna, they're going to do that. They'll be fickle. They'll be their own God. They'll sit on their own throne. They'll rule their own life. But don't lose hope. Because why? Because thankfully there is a hope that is beyond us. It's not a hope that I produce. It's a hope that I have in Christ. And so note what it says here. Note that last phrase, the holy seed is its stump. And so here's the reality is that they're going to be taken off to Babylon and what Jesus or or what Yahweh is saying in this passage basically is this, that when it looks hopeless and when the tree is, when the nation like a tree is chopped down and laying there and there's nothing left but this stump, When it looks really hopeless, there's life in that stump. There's life in that stump, and there's going to be a few people, a remnant. There are going to be a few people that are going to outlast the Babylonian captivity, and the people are going to rise again. And there's hope. And you know why there's hope? Because you know what those few people are going to produce? What are those few people going to produce? Jesus. In fact, you see the connection here that Isaiah is looking at this grand, uh, this, this grand Lord. He's sitting on the throne. He's the God of all. And then at the end of the chapter, when the tree is chopped down and there is a stump left and all seems hopeless, well, just, just, just know, oh, I didn't read the rest of it. 
Oh, oh, this is Revelation 11. So here it is. Then this is Revelation 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of God. So from that little root, that, that little remnant of people, that little stump will come these people that will produce Jesus Christ who will come to earth. And so just see the hope of Yahweh is an, is an indestructible hope. You can chop down the tree, you can try, but it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon God. There's a hope that is above us and a hope that is beyond us and a hope that cannot be destroyed. And, and the beautiful thing of this whole, that just to see this as we kind of bring this in today, is that the one that he worships, that he sees on the throne, that he worships, that he's just so taken captive by him, by, by Yahweh, at the end of the chapter, he is a little baby coming to earth as a little baby to rise up, to die on a cross, to redeem us all from our sin and our despair. A hope that is destructible, the hope that is beyond us. He's going to do what we could never do. There is no earthly king that could ever do what this king will do. No earthly king could come born as a baby, rise up to save the entire world. Hmm, how beautiful, how beautiful is that? Finally, let me give you one last reality this morning, just briefly here. This is going to take us to our vantage point in the New Testament and bring this all together. To them, Paul writes, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we have this, right? Uh, I, I, I can... Um, I can find hope in the object of my worship. I can find joy in the object of my worship. I can find purpose in the object of my worship. And finally, here's what's so beautiful about it all is that we are filled with the object of our worship. Because we aren't gods, we are temples, and we are filled with the object of our worship. How amazing is that? How incredible is that? Talk about finding, talk about finding hope. And can I just take you back to Uzziah a minute, just, just to take you back to, a, to Uzziah. Here's the thing about Uzziah and his downfall, right? He messed up, he had a, a, a sad ending to his life. What was Uzziah's problem? Watch this. You know what Uzziah's name means? And I don't even think I have it on the screen here. Uzziah's name. Here's what Uzziah's name means. My strength is Yahweh. That's what his name means. My strength is Yahweh. Remember this verse. He, Uzziah, set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. As long as he found his strength in Yahweh, as long as he trusted Yahweh with his hope, as, as long as he remembered who he was in Yahweh, things were good. There it is, Uzziah, my strength is Yahweh. And here's the reality. When Uzziah forgot who he was in the Lord, he lost his hope. And I'm just gonna tell you today, it's the same for you and I. When we lose sight of who we are in Christ, we will lose our hope. But there is a hope that is above us, a hope that is beyond us, a hope that we can't manufacture or produce, that we are not responsible for a hope we simply find when we trust God with our Hope, a hope that is right here. Here's our big idea, just kind of expanded. When we worship, we find a hope that is above us, a hope that goes beyond us, and a hope, 
Oh, how beautiful. That lives within us. Can we be people of a hope today? Do we have a reason to go out into the world and take the message of hope? Here am I, send me. I have hope. I have hope right here, and I want to share that hope with you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you that we are not doomed. Thank you, Lord, that woe is me has become Christ in me. Ha <laughs> isn't that great? Woe is me, and now it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. We have this incredible hope. May we just be people of hope. And Lord, when we struggle, and we're gonna struggle, and I struggled this week. This is, it was just so aware to me last, this past Monday when I was feeling a little hopeless. And I don't get that way very often. And you just reminded me of this message as I was going through this. That was probably intentional. But the reality is we just need to be deliberately expressive sometimes. We need to look up, we need to bow down, and we need to sing out. And we need to be a people of hope. And everyone said, amen, amen.